This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome back to New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. This is Andrea Bernardi, your host. Today I am with Miriam Dressen from Oxford University, and we are talking about a great new book, Tales of Hope, Tastes of Bitterness, published in 2019 by Hong Kong University Press. Welcome, Miriam. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, Please tell us something about your affiliations, your current and past affiliations, and then about the origin of the book, how you ended writing a book on Chinese road builders in Ethiopia. Oh, that's a very long story. Well, I'm currently a researcher in the China Law and Development Project um, that is hosted by the University of Oxford China Center. But this book is part of my doctoral research. But it actually starts earlier because before I started my PhD, I wrote another book uh, in my own, my native language, Dutch. And that was on a um, urban migrant enclave in Xiamen, where I traced the life trajectories of rural urban migrants and local residents who saw their lives being completely transformed by an encroaching city. So you have these villages amidst the city. This was back in 2009, um, 8, 9, 10. And after finishing this project, I was looking maybe to build on this, but also start something new, a new, new challenge. And I basically followed these rural urban migrants because there has been a shift in the migration frontier, you could argue, um, from rural to urban migration in China to rural to urban and maybe overseas migration. So this is a very similar group coming from similar backgrounds, so often from a rural background. Of course, more recently in the past decades, Chinese migration to Africa has completely diversified and there's many, many um, kind of class in terms of class. Uh, background, educational background, it has diversified. But the first um, who came to Ethiopia, where I did my field work, um, were were really the the, the construction workers who built the roads, um, both the engineers and and the foremen who had been construction workers on the construction site. But to return to um, <laughs> the idea for the book, it was actually just uh, one newspaper article that uh, triggered my 
um, that really yeah gave me inspiration to to look at this, uh, which was exactly about Chinese road builders in Addis Ababa, and so I was like, this is it, <laughs> yeah. Well, so you are an anthropologist, and we have heard another anthropologist on this series of podcasts, and she was C.K. Lee. We spoke with her about her book, The Spectre of Global China, to where we also asked her about the link between her work and the work of her former supervisor, Michael Burrowoy. Both, they both worked on, in Ghana. And uh, uh, C.K. worked in particular in the construction industry and in the copper mining industry. Um, so I would like to ask you, what is the relationship between you and C.K. Because I know that there is one. And also how you ended selecting different, a different country in Africa and a different uh, uh, industry. You just told that somehow by curiosity. But what are the implications of those two different uh, sectors and uh, countries in Africa? So my anthropology mentors always told me when you go to the field, really concentrate on your field work, which includes listening, observing, sensing, and don't bring any books, they said, or maybe just one, just uh, for inspiration. And so when I left for Ethiopia, that was in 2011, I brought one book with me which was Against the Law, um, which is one of, still one of my favorite um, books in, 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 chi in China studies. And what I really admire of C.K. Lee's scholarship is the uh, combination of very rigorous ethnography and the bigger picture, like a, a more like a broader theoretical framework that, that, that she moves between. And in my, in my view, there are very few scholars who really can do both um, very well. So she was a very, I think her type of scholarship was a main inspiration for me. In terms of the comparison between the sectors, you say, um, unfortunately, I have only focused on, on road construction because in Ethiopia, there's very little to no um, mining, uh, let alone Chinese involvement in mining. But my hinge is reading other people's work is that actually a lot of the, the miners are come from similar backgrounds in China as the, those who work in the construction sector. And it was also part of the kind of first wave um, in the 90s. So road construction really took off. If you look really at um, Chinese road building companies as competitive contractors, so of course during the Mao period you had a lot of aid projects where engineers were, were dispatched to Africa to complete these projects, often on a rotational basis, and it would return. But in the 90s, it was really Chinese companies who participated in tenders. And so the first projects they took up in Africa were often actually funded by the World Bank, the European Commission, or, um, or African governments rather than Uh, Chinese money. So, so what we really tend to forget, I think, is that it was first the companies, and then during the 2000s, it was Chinese investment at the state from the state, but also private investment, kind of starting to take to take off. 
Uh, in fact, something very interesting from uh, the spectre of global China basically is that uh, we learn that there are different types of uh, capitalism, the state, the private, the small capitalism, in, uh, Chinese capitalism in, in Asia, in, um, in Africa. And Sikili argues that the state capitalism presence of China in Africa is uh, somehow arguably better for, for Africa than the private global capitalism would, uh, would otherwise uh, be. Uh, okay, let's move now to your proper book. So we are talking about tales of hope, tales of bitterness. There are seven chapters pushed to Ethiopia, preserving purity, the politics of intimacy, fashioning Ethiopians' laborers, inspiring discipline, entangled in lawsuits and speaking bitterness. So, uh, three keywords, hope, uh, taste of bitterness and uh, tales. So tell us about the hope and the bitterness of the Chinese in Africa. So as an anthropologist, I was very much interested in narratives because narratives, they tell about the self-perceptions and the perceptions of uh, the narrators. In this case, my focus was on the Chinese workers, on um, work and life in Ethiopia and Ethiopian laborers they, they worked with. And I felt through um, unraveling these narratives, I was able to understand um, their own positions in society in China, as well as Chinese um, China's position, shifting position in, in, in the world. Um, but also just their experience of daily work on, on the construction site. So that is the first concept of tales. Hope was um, a lot of workers I found had a very, especially at the beginning, just um, upon arriving in Africa, a hope of being able to transform, to really do something good and make something better, in improving, uh, or as they usually said, helping Africans develop. Uh, so the concept they use is yuanjian, uh, so help build, uh, if you translate it literally. Um, but the reality was uh, much less rosy, so there was a huge discrepancy between these hopes of, of, of the will to improve and the realities on the ground, where a lot of both state officials and laborers, just ordinary rank-and-file workers, um, prove very resistant or even subversive to, um, their, to their activities, which they found really hard to explain. In fact, they, they really struggled with. Um, so, so the book is really about this, this struggle of, of, of just to deal with these issues, but also to make sense of them. Uh, so the bitterness really talks about the uh, what I said the the false expectations or the unmet expectations rather of um, of their hopes. Uh, well, now let's move to the African side, so to the Ethiopians. And here, surprisingly, your book is about a book about power and agency that you wouldn't expect in among the locals, so the, the the humble workers, the most humble workers, and and the, all the chain of uh, people and institutions in Ethiopia and their um, interaction with the Chinese presence. So, um, surprisingly, is there agency and power among them? So. 
This is something that really emerged from my field work. So in my field work, I lived in uh, in engineers camp, both on the Chinese side and the Ethiopian side. And I went to the construction site every day. So for more than a year, I was just on the construction site, observing the works, um, holding conversations with the foreman, the consultant engineers, the members of the Ethiopian roads authorities and all kinds of different levels. And the one thing that really struck me and, and for that reason became one of the red threats in my book is the agency of, of local workers and how they manage to both critique and to a certain extent, of course, there, there are limits, um, kind of change these power dynamics uh, to their benefit. And so, um, and you saw that you saw that in different forms, from very subtle forms of, for, for instance, slowing down the work pace, or drinking a beer while working, or chewing chat, um, to more more consequential actions like strikes. But especially, um, Ethiopian workers started suing their employers in court, and as a lot of lawsuits were won by local workers others took inspiration and so there was a huge search of Ethiopian workers suing their Chinese managers in court and you see also this increase of legal awareness um, among these workers and 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 they're kind of realizing that they have the law on their side um, and and this really I thought is very strong. So a lot of Chinese companies in the construction industry have lost a lot of money because because of this. And this set in motion the kind of improvement of um, working conditions in terms of contractual arrangements, severance pay, um, kind of co coverage of medical costs, but also wages. Um, you saw them increase very, very rapidly. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Very interesting. Um, but beside the clash between Chinese and Africans, there is also another clash, which is the clash between uh, classes, different classes of Chinese, and in particular Chinese migrants. Can you tell us about the variety of typologies of migration and migrants of, of Chinese in Africa and what type of interaction there were among them? Yeah, so this is something that also really struck me. Um, so there was actually a hierarchy among the Chinese community. And this hierarchy was based on kind of type of company you were employed by, but also background, educational background, class background in, in, in China. So what you saw, for instance, in state-owned companies, so often these construction projects are taken up by state-owned compa state companies and then subcontracted uh, to um both privately owned and municipal or provincial level state-owned companies. And talking about state-owned companies, you had very much this dual track system where one part of the workforce is permanently employed by the state-owned company. It's really part of the company. They really own it. 
and feel entitled, whereas one part um, typically classified as the peasant worker is only there temporarily and they're, they're hired for a single project or for just a number of years and, and, and their, um, their employment is much more precarious. So you saw this, this kind of division within state-owned companies, but then you also had a division between the state-owned companies and the privately-owned companies because everybody was clear if you work um, for a Chinese company in Africa, you, should, you try to work for a state-owned company because they provide much better conditions. Um, and some of the private companies are really dependent on... Uh, the whim of the general manager often how well off you were. And, and in some cases, um, there was a lot of exploitation going on, especially these um, private companies that emerge um, from work gangs in that used to be uh, working in the construction industry in, in China, kind of um, the workers being composed of place-based networks and, and really tight relations of, of obligation and, and debt. And, and you saw a lot of malpractices in, in these companies. But again, state-owned companies was a very different story where actually workers have a lot of um, perks. Um, so some, for instance, some of these state-owned companies, they offer uh, a Beijing hukou, uh, the re- household registration, or um, uh, they have like proper health insurance coverage and, and all kinds of things. And they're, they're living quarters are better and their food um, is much better so you're much more imported than the local companies so you, you you even could see from the food they had on the table in the evenings um, for what company they were working so they were rural migrants but from with the Beijing Uko as a benefit they, they would be allowed to go back to Beijing if they wanted after the work huh? so if they really became permanent employees or um, if they moved to kind of being part of the company then yes but of course then is the question can we afford a house in Beijing because you would not move back necessarily to Beijing if you cannot afford and that is very complicated and so what happened is that they happily took the Beijing hukou, but they bought a house often in the capital city of their home uh, province or, or, or a city closer to, to home. Uh, very interesting. By the way, you are elegantly understating that you are a fluent uh, Chinese Mandarin speaker. And so the, the book, uh, there are some uh, hints that you were working with them in Chinese. For example, these two names uh, about the two typologies of work as the permanent and the uh, peasant's work, the Nongbing Wong, well, you, will, uh, you will correct me, you will correct my Chinese. Yeah. The two typologies of uh, workers. That's right. So um, here I classify this kind of dual system where um, the workers part of the work unit, woman, um, were classified, like kind of separated from the nomingong or mingong. So the Chinese firm was trying to reproduce uh, the class system, the working class system in, 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 uh, in Ethiopia. And um, now you, you mentioned the difficulties in coming back and you define this in the book as a one-way trip and one-way ticket to Africa to become a migrant worker abroad and so the difficulties to, to coming back. Can I ah, yes. comment on this? Oh, of course. Um, what, what is interesting and what I actually found over following... Um, these men mostly, I mostly worked with men over nearly a decade long, is that many 
from the beginning, they said, we only want to stay for two, three years and we go back home. They really had this idea of after we finish this project, we go back home. But after a certain number of years, they went from one project to another project and they felt they had bought a house, but it the mortgage needed to be repaid. And, and there was always something more that, that had to, that, that really required them to stay. And so what happened, I found later on, is that many of these men who call moving to Ethiopia and other African countries um, a way out actually find it really hard to find a way back um, because the lifestyle they built for themselves with the higher salary they earn in Africa, they've been able to build a middle urban middle-class lifestyle they can only maintain when they stay in Africa and, and continue working because there's no employment for, for them back home or they have to compromise on a much lower salary or even switch their, their profession. But life in China for them, for this this group of, of people is very insecure. And so they opted to stay. By the way, there is a very simple but revolutionary concept in your book, which is uh, uh, that developments, in fact, uh, triggers migration, both uh, uh, domestic migration and international migration. So in Europe, we have this uh, stereotype of, okay, let's help uh, Africans in Africa or whatever developing country there, and so they will not want to uh, come to us. Instead, uh, the Chinese exam example itself is a case where development pushed people to move within the country and then to move abroad. Um, by the way, surprisingly, you uh, mentioned in the book that uh, the Ethiopians were considering you somehow part of the Chinese or if not uh, a Chinese. How can this be possible? <laughs> yeah, I was a little bit of an ambiguous figure, I think, because <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, I'm white and, and blonde, but I did stay in the Chinese camps. I spoke Chinese, but then also in terms of gender, I wore trousers instead of um, of skirts or dresses and i'm talking about rural areas right okay. this is very different from urban areas so i was a little bit of an odd one and they had a hard time kind of classifying what i was especially children uh, so any for children little children they hardly see white-skinned foreigners and in, in in these regions uh, if they come they kind of go like uh, drive past very quickly in, in cars and so they don't really interact with them um, but so they weren't quite sure. Um, of course, of course, the, the more educated, they were very clear of, of who, of who and what I was, but often the children, they had like China, China, and they would, um, yell when, when I walked along the street. By the way, you worked on the local tribunals. Uh, you didn't have any hint about what was happening with the national tribunals in regulating these Chinese presence in Ethiopia. Yeah, so I found that the the local state courts, and these are the lowest level state courts, played an incredibly important role in enhancing the agency of local workers, as I said. And um, but the claims brought to these courts courts were um, significant, but never really crossed the line that would make them go to a higher. So there were very numerous, but there were relatively small and contained, which is also the reason why often Chinese companies did not appeal, because it were all single, small, single cases. 
Of course, now um, it has happened that there are bigger cases, especially when they concern land. Um, they start at a higher level. So you have three levels of state courts. There's the, the kind of vereda, the lowest level, and then you have the zonal and then kind of the state, the regional state level. And some even um, end up in, a, in, in, in the high court in, in Antisababa. So there are cases, but most of them, like the majority, really stay at the local level. But I think it's still, it doesn't say that it's, it's, it's meaningless because qu uh, quantity really uh, was, was key and, and, and really also prevented or, or not prevented, but um, left the Chinese um, kind of at odds and, 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 and with their backs against the wall because they, they couldn't, couldn't really do anything. Now let's move to the biggest question, which is um, the overall role of China, or yes, of China in Africa. Um, you, in the introduction of the book, you tend to say that uh, you don't want to take a, a strong position on this, uh, and but maybe I still will ask you, what do you think about the presence of China in Africa, and uh, is it correct to define it as neo-colonialism, as the mainstream, or at least the, uh, the, the traditional stereotype attributes to this presence? Yeah, so what I have wanted to do in this book is really to look at what is happening on the ground on a day-to-day -day basis. How do people interact? How do they overcome the linguistic, cultural, etc. barriers? And that are there. And so um, I have kind of refrained or tried to refrain from making broad brush statements. But the reasons why I don't want to classify what is happening right now as colonialism or neocolonialism for that matter is for two main reasons. The first one, and I think the most important one, is that who are you as an author or a scholar to say to say that a certain phenomenon is colonialism whilst the people who are actually living this this uh, sorry this phenomenon don't classify it as such so ethiopians would would rarely classify what is going on as colonialism and neither would the chinese of course both sides recognize there is a, a symmetry in, in kind of power dynamics, but none of so who who am I? So there's this issue of of kind of the authority of the author. Um, this is the first one. The second one, I think asking this question, very few people ask what actually is colonialism. And colonialism often is composed of three um, three parts. One is there is a foreign presence in a certain certain territory. Second um, is possession of this territory. The third one is domination of this 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 kind of locality. And perhaps we can say yes, there is Chinese presence in in Ethiopia. But then I'm hesitating to say. The Chinese are possessing Ethiopia, I wouldn't say that. And I also would not argue that they're dominating uh, the country at all. So, so it's very far off, I think, what is happening. And domination often back in the day in European colonialism happened through violence and, and force. And 
and and yeah so it's very far off so i don't i don't want to go <laughs> this is the two reasons why i don't want to go into this uh, debate very interesting i also see that there isn't a project of exporting a religion or a cultural uh, mainstream or another Chinese uh, uh, characteristic elsewhere. So I, I, in fact, I agree with your uh, judgment. Now let's move to your next book. So I know that you are just uh, leaving to go back to Ethiopia, where, by the way, you, you are able not only to communicate with the Chinese in Chinese, but also with the Ethiopians in their language. And what are you going to do? So what will be your next book? Yeah, so the project I'm part of now looks at the legal dimension of Chinese outward investment. And I would like to build on the role of courts or more generally disputes, dispute resolution and dispute prevention in Ethiopian Chinese encounters. And um, whereas this book looks mostly at labor, I now want to look at more issues that have been um, sources of dispute, including land, tax, um, crime. So you have an increasing number of criminal cases, often petty crime. Um, and so the wide range of, of disputes at different uh, levels of jurisdiction. So I'm, I'm, whereas I focus on the on the lower level courts in my book, I now also want to look at the zonal and and the and the, the high the higher courts. Um, so this hopefully will be my next book. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it will be. And so thank you very much. In the meantime, congratulations for your current book published by Hong Kong University Press in 2019, Tales of Hope, Tastes of Bitterness, Chinese Road Builders in Ethiopia. We spoke with Dr. Miriam Dresen, which is a research associate at the Chinese Center, China Center of the University of Oxford. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. New books in economics brought to you by EAEPE the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy.